Guys, good morning. Good to, uh, good to see you today. And um, for those of you who are, who are new with us this week, maybe weren't with us last week or the last couple, all this school year, what we're doing is embarking on a journey through the question, why? Over 500 times in the Bible, people ask that basic life question, why? Asking it to each other, crying it out to God, and surprisingly, God turning it around and asking people the exact same question, why? And at the center of Christianity is, is, is really this, this fundamental question of why Jesus died. And I mentioned this last week, but I want to reiterate it again, that for those of us who grew up in church circles or call ourselves Christian, we know that the reason Jesus died is for our sins. But I want to look at it differently these next few weeks. Instead of looking at the theological and philosophical reasons why Jesus died, what we're going to be doing is looking at the historic reasons. What happened in 30 AD that got Jesus on the cross? Because I believe that when we know what happened and that we understand the events around it and the cultures that, that, that permeate it, we come to a place where we, we, we will never see Jesus' crucifixion in quite the same way again. Now, each of these weeks, I'm going to start by reading a, a select Bible passage that, that draws out one of the aspects as to why Jesus died. This one is a bit longer, but I just encourage you be patient with it and try to stay tuned and soak in to the reasons of what got him to that cross from Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and they were delighted at this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Later, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. 
Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, and the elders and teachers of the law came together, and Peter followed at a distance. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. And yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming down with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Now very early the next morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So he asked, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate Ask them, and in that two-word phrase that is echoed down through history, they shouted, Crucify him! Why? What crime 
as he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now last week we talked about how it was the Romans who killed Jesus. But it's the Jewish leaders who got him there. Whatever culpability and responsibility there is to be shared and go around, it was the Jewish leaders that got him to his death. Now, it's fascinating to me that throughout the Gospels you see this theme of the Jewish leaders' hatred and jealousy towards Jesus grow and grow, leading them to want him dead. Over 40 times you can count up through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that in somehow and in some way these leaders were plotting his death. Let me show you a few examples today. There's this one story where Jesus heals this man who's crippled on the Sabbath. An amazing act of charity, right? Just an amazing act of goodness. Would you agree? But look at the response. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There's this other instance where Jesus comes into the temple and he sees what it's become the farthest thing from a holy place devoted to God and he gets mad. And he starts driving out the money changers and flipping the temples, which, let's face it, is enough to raise the ire of anyone. But look at how far they go. It says, when the chief priests and teachers of the law who weren't even there heard this, they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What strikes me as fascinating here is the motive of why they want him dead. The temple, an excuse. The reason being something deeper Instead, there's this story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he goes into the synagogue as was the custom for the rabbis and he sits down to teach and he begins to teach from Isaiah 61, which is this message about the vocation and calling given to the people of Israel. And the prophet will write things like, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to, re- to, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to release those in dungeons in prisons and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus, with all eyes on him, says, Today, this is fulfilled and you're hearing. And he goes on to challenge them and to convict them for their failure in that calling. And the response of this synagogue, they were furious, so furious that they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him 
off the cliff. How bad does a sermon have to be <laughs> that you take him to the edge of the town to throw him off a cliff? I think the most stark, though, the most just crazy to me is, is surrounding the story of a man named Lazarus. Do you know this name? He was a friend of Jesus, and he died and Jesus literally raises him back to life. I mean, come on, it doesn't get better than this. Listen to the response. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said. You don't realize it's better for one man to die. It is better for that one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, John will write, he didn't say this on his own, but his high priest that year prophesied. And look at where it goes. I'll skip that. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Murder, betrayal, handing over, stoning, throwing off cliffs, conspiring, plotting. Use whatever language that you want. These Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. And it's odd, isn't it? I mean, what is it that brings a person with such passion to want someone else dead? What kind of hatred or jealousy wells up that leads a person, especially a person who claims to be a person of God, to that place? Well, I think to help understand this, it's actually important to know something of Israel's history, and specifically that there was a deep tradition within Israel's history of idolatry. Deep within Israel's history is idol worship. Now, they would worship all kinds of gods throughout their history, and you can read the pages of the Old Testament to see example after example. But the Fab Four was this. It was Golden calves and Baal, it was Asherah's and it was Molech. So much so that God would call his people spiritual prostitutes. Worshipping anything, any place, any time, anywhere, any stick of wood, any carved statue, any God that they hadn't yet met that caught their eye. You can read through the pages of the Old Testament, them running after, and God would warn them. 
He would warn them again and again. Run after these things, and you are going to become as blind and deaf and mute as these worthless idols. I love how the prophet Isaiah puts it. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, you'll be turned back in utter shame. Hear you deaf. Look you blind and see. Continue down this path and you will deafen yourself and blind yourself to who I am and what I am trying to tell you. And they have this history of not listening and doing just that. And God warns them, you're going to be judged you're going to be carried off into the lands of these gods you love and far away from me, the one you don't want to hear or see. And that's what happens. And it continued through to Jesus' day. But what's odd in Jesus' day, or what's interesting in Jesus' day, is that when you look at the Jews in that time period, although they still viewed themselves in the judgment of God because of their past idolatry, by Jesus' day, idolatry was the farthest thing from them. Or so it seemed. This absolute turn, it's like, like it had an effect what God had warned them of and what God had said, fleeing from any hint of golden calves or bales or Molech or Asherahs, priding themselves on their fierce loyalty and devotion to God, choosing persecution and mockery and martyrdom over even things like their sacred books and their synagogues. Saying, I would rather die than not circumcise my child. I would rather die than defile my lips with pork or unclean meat. Going to the absolute degree to show their loyalty to God and their fleeing from idolatry, that they would even pay with their lives. This is the stuff of Daniel and Esther and the Maccabees. And yet what's so odd is that despite this, when Jesus comes face to face with these Jewish leaders, he accuses them of being just as bad if not worse, than these generations that went before. Martin Luther has a quote where he writes, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both idle and God. 
Because the reality in Jesus' day is that the Jews were guilty of idolatry of a different kind. It might not have been Baal or Asherah or Molech. But there are other gods quick to take their place. Their tradition. Their way. Their calling. Their chosen identity. And those ways that they marked themselves by to express it and show loyalty in some odd, convoluted, strange way. It's like the Jews took their own religion and made it their God. Because a God isn't something or an idol isn't something that's just a block of wood or stone. It's that which you trust in before God. It's that in which you find your identity before God. It's that which you value above God alone. The Bible scholar J.A. Moitier will write, the idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. And the Jewish leaders came to love these idols they had erected so much that they were willing to kill for them. Because when you idolize something and you set it up so high and it becomes so a part of you, so central to your identity and so valuable to you and something or someone comes along who threatens that, well, it leads people to do the unthinkable, to protect it. The Romans may have killed Jesus but it was these Jewish leaders out of jealousy from a deeply idolatrous heart that got them there. But before we're too quick to point fingers and throw stones, I suspect we have our idols as well. I bet none of you here have some statue of wood in your closet that you go pray to. Or some little shrine set up in the living room to which you pay homage. But what are those things that you value? Those things that shape your identity and where you find your meaning in? That start to supplant God alone. Maybe you don't hand your children over to be burned in the fires of Molech. But do you hand them over in the pursuit of money and your career? Maybe you don't bow down and worship some statue in your back room. 
But do you sell out your friends for popularity? Your integrity for an A? Idols take all kinds of forms today. It's the story I heard of the young wife who didn't want her family going to church because she feared that her husband would have to put Jesus before herself. I want to read you a poem today, which some of you are going to hate. It's written by a man named John Piper, a Christian speaker and author, preacher today, and he composed this poem and read it at his son's wedding. And it's entitled, Love Her More and Love Her Less. Bear with me. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. If in the coming years, by some strange providence of God, you come to have the riches of this age and and painless stride across the stage beside your wife, be sure in health to love her, love her more than wealth. And if your life is woven in a hundred friendships and you spin a festal fabric out of all, your sweet affections, great and small, be sure no matter how it rends to love her, love her more than friends. And if there comes a point when you are tired and pity whispers, do yourself a favor, come be free. Embrace the comforts here with me. Know this, your wife surpasses these, so love her. Love her more than ease. And when your marriage bed is pure and there is not the slightest lure of lust for any but your wife, and all is ecstasy in life, and the secret all of this protects, go love her, love her more than sex. And if your taste becomes refined and you are moved by what the mind of man can make and dazzled by his craft, remember that the why of all this work is in the heart. So love her, love her more than art. And if your own should someday be the craft that critics all agree is worthy of some great esteem and sales exceed your wildest dreams, beware the dangers of a name and love her, love her more than fame. And if to your surprise, not mine, God calls you by some strange design to risk your life for some great cause. Let neither fear nor love give pause. And when you face the gate of death, then love her, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. But beyond this, venture not. But lest... Your love become a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall as in humility before a likeness of your God. Adore above your best beloved on earth the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace.
and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow beneath these promises first made to you by God. Nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go love her more by loving her less. What is it that takes primacy in your life? That you most value, that you most cherish, that you most trust, and from which you derive the greatest part of identity. That, I say, is your idol. That, I say, is your God. And devotion to idols and gods will lead people to the unthinkable. The Romans drove the nails. But it was the jealous, idolatrous heart of the Jewish people that got him there. Jesus died because of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. But he died for them too. And for each of you standing here who has an idol that you prize, that you elevate and seek your identity in, Jesus died for you too. Last week, I showed a picture of a hammer driving a nail. And I showed you how that picture was the director shooting the movie saying the hand was mine that killed him. That's your hand too. Because when Jesus died, he died for these people and he died for you too, absorbing upon himself all of the jealous, hateful idolatry this world has to offer. And inviting these same people to leave their idols behind and to start reshaping and remolding their image in him instead.